Um, tonight's reading is Matthew 9, verse 35 to 38, and can be found on page 974, starting at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much. We'll do keep that page in the Bible open. We'll uh, look at it in a moment. It is a great joy uh, to be with you. I've, I've known Trevor for many years. I think the world of him, uh, I guess many of you do too. Um, in London, I don't know whether it's the same here in, in Northern Ireland, but uh, many Christians are afflicted with what I would call uh, the chameleon syndrome. I don't know, do you, do you have that issue here? Um, my wife and I went on, uh, had a, a lovely break a few years ago. We went to uh, Marrakesh, and uh, in the souk there, the market, there was uh, tons of these little lizards, these chameleon lizards. Do you know what they do? You know, they, they kind of change their appearance to fit in, be camouflaged to avoid predators. And uh, they're very clever, those lizards. But um, with Christians, sometimes we tend to the same thing. We kind of changed, change our appearance, we change our behavior so we fit in socially. And then no one discovers we're a Christian, and then we're safe from predators. And uh, we can even get very proud of ourselves that nobody's even realized we're a Christian. And you know, a couple of years goes by, and you've been on a university course, and somebody in your tutor group never even realized you're a Christian. You know, you've worked in the, of the office here for six years and nobody ever realized you were a Christian. And uh, when eventually it slips out that you, you know, went to church and they say, oh, you're into God, I had no idea. And kind of, you think, oh, well, at least I don't look too weird. And then when you think about it for a moment, actually, that's not a brilliant thing really, is it? You know, if you just, nothing distinctive, you, you don't stand out kind of behaving like one of those chameleon lizards just trying to blend in to avoid predators. And for various reasons that we're going to see tonight, I don't think that's a great way to live life, like a chameleon. Now, of course, this church here is trying to reach Belfast and beyond with the good news of Jesus. In London, we're trying to do the same. So I, uh, as well as leading the church, I lead this church planting and strengthening movement in London called Co-Mission named after Jesus' great commission, to make disciples of all nations. Uh, for him, we're trying to make 60 churches, plant 60 churches by 2025 and 360 longer term. And it's really costly. It costs people a lot of money, a lot of effort. Where it's, it's hard going for people to sort of move into different parts of London uh, with a few other families and to start again, to start a new church is really costly for the people involved. Why, why would you do that? Why don't you just kind of blend in and just take part in the London project, which everybody else is, you know? Why would you sort of push the boat out so hard? Why would you try so hard? Why would you be so zealous to think about going abroad and to another country, you know, into a different community that's not your own and try and establish? Why would you do that? So why would you do mission? Well, this passage in Matthew 9, 35 to 38 <coughs> I think will really help us understand uh, why once you become a Christian you really need to maximise your gospel ministry. And that's all I want to do tonight is just to persuade you 
whoever you are, uh, whatever kind of person you are, to maximise your gospel ministry. Uh, This passage comes just before um, Jesus gave instructions to his disciples in chapter 10, sending them out on mission to multiply his ministry in the region. And in this passage, there are three compelling reasons why Jesus sent his disciples to evangelise. There are three motives for mission, three motives to maximise our gospel ministry for all of us, whether we live in Belfast or in London, or perhaps we're going home to our home country, uh, to a different part of the world. Uh, Three uh, reasons to maximise your ministry. And they're very simple. And you probably think, why on earth did we bring a guy over from London to say this? Because it's pretty obvious. Firstly, Jesus was an evangelist. Jesus was an evangelist. Look at verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. Uh, This verse is almost exactly the same as a bit earlier in chapter 4, verse 23, uh, because these verses describe what Jesus was constantly doing. He was always doing this, proclaiming the gospel and training other people to do it. Notice the scale of his efforts. It says Jesus went through all the towns and villages. I mean, there were over 200 of them in the region. There were only small villages, but a lot of people lived there. The historian Josephus reckons there were three million people living there. Now, almost certainly he was exaggerating, but it's a lot of people. So this wasn't a casual stroll, chatting randomly to anybody who wanted to chat. Now, Jesus embarked on a deliberate, demanding, determined effort to evangelise as many people as he possibly could. Because I don't know whether you realise this, Jesus wasn't just a theologian, not just a great prophet, not just a great leader gathering people, not just a nice man walking around being incredibly loving. He was an evangelist. He was a church-planting, cross-cultural missionary from heaven because he was an evangelist. When you met Jesus, he constantly wanted to explain the gospel to you. He's one of those guys who said, should I have a beer? He said, yeah, great. Can we talk about the gospel? I thought, I just want to have a beer. I said, well, I want to talk about the gospel. You know, I mean, if you're not a Christian here, sometimes... I don't know whether you know somebody like that. And, you, and it's quite annoying. Uh, don't miss the opportunity you've got with that person. This is a very special opportunity. If you've got somebody who won't stop talking about the gospel, uh, that's a brilliant friend to have. Have you noticed how in his personal counselling and his Bible studies and in his sermons, he wasn't just talking about improving ma- our marriages or how to parent children, but how to enter the kingdom of heaven? I mean, I, I love all the new biblical counselling uh, movement stuff that's going on. It's brilliant. Really helping us to connect the teaching of the Bible with people's personal needs. But one of the reasons it's going to be so helpful, it seems to me, is to help us to explain the good news of Jesus to people who have no idea what we're talking about. Because when you look at Jesus' Bible, Bible counsel, look at his individual conversations, he's constantly talking about the gospel. And his small group Bible studies, he's constantly talking about the gospel. When he's preaching sermons, he's constantly talking about how to get into the kingdom of God. That is the gospel. You see, when the living God took flesh, he became an evangelist. And that's not surprising if you read the Old Testament. If you go back and sort of read the whole of the Bible from the beginning, it was a big project, but if you read it through, it's not surprising. You see, he created human beings to be worshippers in his world. 
And after our ancestors rebelled, through evangelism, he intended to recruit people, all of humanity, to worship him. And so he promised Abraham a kingdom through which he would bless all nations. How is he doing that? Through evangelism, as the gospel goes to all nations. He redeemed Israel to model his kingdom, to be his holy priesthood to all nations. How would they do that? Through evangelism. He welcomed outsiders like Rahab and Ruth into his people, and he promised David a son who would conquer all nations. How will he conquer all nations? Through evangelism. God sent prophets to evangelize the nations in their writings. He sent Jonah on a humbling mission to Nineveh to train his people in evangelism. Most wonderful mission. The whole city turned to God because that, what's God, that is what God wants for his world. Then he promised his people in exile a Messiah who'd be a light to all nations. How? Through evangelism. So when God arrived in Jesus and the Magi came from far nations to worship him, it's no surprise that when he began his public ministry, he called disciples to him saying this, follow me and what's going to happen? I'll make you fishers of people training them to sow the word of the gospel, however unpopular, slow, and unimpressive it seems. And after dying for sinners on the cross, he commanded his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Poured out his Holy Spirit to empower his apostles to be his witnesses by preaching and writing the New Testament and empowering us as his prophets to declare the wonders of Jesus from the Bible to the ends of the earth. In fact, he's delayed the end of the world to give us the joy of finding his people. And he encourages us to keep evangelizing despite the persecution we may face with the most thrilling vision of a final glorious multicultural feast of the Lamb when we gather in the presence of our loving Saviour where we will celebrate him with a multitude that nobody can count from every nation to adore and enjoy him forever. What is the world all about? It's about evangelism. That is what we're here for. Or he would have ended the world and taken us all home. That is what we're here for, to reach those who don't yet know him. So it should be no surprise to anybody that when God took flesh in Jesus that first Christmas, he was then, and still is now, a relentless cross-cultural missionary and church-planting evangelist. You see, what we're learning from Jesus is that God is evangelistic, and therefore godliness is evangelistic, and holiness is evangelistic. Now, I didn't realize that when I was younger as a Christian. You see, you can't actually be a godly person, you can't be a holy people, you can't be a holy church unless you're passionately committed to reaching people with the good news of Jesus. Because the defining activity of a church is Bible teaching, but the purpose of a church is worshipping God through evangelistic holiness. That's what we're here for. So when I grew up, you see, I thought holiness and godliness was about not doing bad things. If I could just stop all the bad habits, then I'd be holy. I thought that that, um, holiness was just the absence of wickedness. I had this kind of antiseptic idea that I'd be like Jesus if I could just stop doing bad things. But when you met Jesus, he didn't just not do bad things. He was absolutely full and overflowing with love and kindness and grace that drove him to speak to people constantly about the gospel. Because you, what you found with Jesus was he would love everybody in every way he could, and especially with the gospel, because that's the most precious thing you can give anybody. 
just uh, near where I live, there's a little a garden called Holland Garden, and it's great. But it, it struck me that it isn't a great garden when people just clean out the weeds. Then you've got bare earth. That's not what holiness is. Holiness is not just the absence of the weeds. It's the presence of beautiful flowers. And so what you find in Jesus, what's wonderful about him is his kindness and his patience and his grace in drawing people to his Father through the gospel. When you think about it, he was a sacrificial cross-cultural missionary who left his home in heaven and came to reach the lost in this unhappy world. He was the first church planter. He says in a few chapters on this rock, that's the gospel, I will build my church. And he's been the wise man building his house on that rock ever since. Because Jesus was above everything else a holy evangelist. And so if we claim to be followers of Jesus, if you love Jesus, if you love him because he's died for your sins and you know he's alive and you want to serve him and you want your life to count for him and you want to do something that when you see him face to face you want to have his, that beaming smile and you want to remember that and the, the words that he says to you ringing in your ears for the rest of eternity do some evangelism because that's what he is that's what he is all about that's the first thing one reason, motive number one, for getting involved in mission is that Jesus was an evangelist and he wants us to follow him in evangelism. Now, don't get me wrong, when we think evangelist, we might just think, oh, you've got to stand on a pulpit out in the street and, and bang a drum or something. I don't mean that. I just mean as the people we are, on whatever way we can, do what we can to contribute to God's evangelistic mission to the world. That's the first thing. Okay, it's the second. Again, it's very simple here. People need Jesus. People need Jesus. Look with me at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them <coughs> because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, how we treat people always depends on how we see them and what we think they need. So when Jesus looked at people, he looked beneath the surface of their fashionable clothes. I don't know what fashionable clothes were like in the first century. He looked beneath the forced smiles to see their greatest need. And what is it? They need him. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He's the shepherd. They need him. Which really challenges the way we see people. When we see people in their cars, when we see people on the train, when we see people in a lecture theatre, when we see people in a classroom or in an office, um, I wonder how we see them. I think we often tend to despise people, envy people, resent people, but it's very striking how Jesus sees people However successful they look on the outside, however fit, you know, the light crow and all the rest of it, and whatever they're wearing, however they look, he looks beneath the surface and he sees them with compassion. As vulnerable sheep, he says they're harassed. Literally, it means flayed. In other words, stressed. Do you think there are any people in Belfast who are stressed? I mean, everyone's stressed. We specialise in stress. And then he says, and they are 
helpless. Literally, the word is flattened, and it means burdened. Do you think people in Belfast are burdened? Do you think there are any stressed and burdened people in London? Do you think there are any stressed and burdened people in this country? Over, over here in, in Belfast, in Ireland? However successful and happy unbelievers often appear, people without Jesus really are stressed by the misery of sin. Of course, there's alcoholism and careerism and there's sexual immorality. Then there's the corruption of our bodies. There's cancer and depression or bereavement. There's the dysfunctions of our society. There's abuse and there's poverty and there's loneliness. It is amazing when you get to know people how much pain and hurt there is under the surface. And I imagine just sitting here in this room, you know it because it's part of your life. It's part of all our lives. And people are anxious, worried sick about their partners, about their jobs, about debt, about illness. Because without Christ, we do feel like vulnerable sheep, because we are spiritually vulnerable. It's such an important thing, you see. The point is, people don't really need us. Going out on mission is not that people need us. They don't need us. If we think that, we're in for a bit of a shock, because people are, why do I need you guys? You just look like the same as me. I mean, they don't need us. They need Jesus. He is the one they need. And the wonderful thing is that he loves them so deeply. The particular word here, compassion, is only ever used in the Gospels, and it's only ever used of Jesus, and it means, literally, bowels. It's not the kind of word used in a polite church, it's bowels. I suppose you'd call it gut-wrenching tenderness. I don't know about you, but when, you know when you see a picture on the TV of some uh, poor kid uh, in a poor country somewhere in Africa, perhaps, uh, suffering from malnutrition, you know, and the nose is running, and the little flies, you know, and you just think, oh my goodness, that poor child. You know that feeling? Don't you feel punched in the guts? It's that feeling. Oh my goodness. Look at these people. But Jesus is feeling that, looking at a crowd of people, just a normal crowd of people. He's not looking at the hospital. He's not looking just at the beggars in the street. He's looking at everyone thinking, oh my goodness, look at these poor people. In 14.14, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had gut-wrenching compassion on them. 15.31, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have gut-wrenching compassion for these people. 20 verse 34, Jesus had gut-wrenching compassion upon them. In other words, when Jesus looks at your friends, when he looks at the local stadium full of supporters, when he looks at the latest, I don't know, gay pride march, the anarchists' march, the uh, uh, Extinction Rebellion marches. And when he looks at all the people there, what is he thinking? We look at those people, and depending on your outlook, you might think one thing or another. Jesus looks at all those people and thinks, oh my goodness, look at them. They so need me. And I now realise the primary reason that we struggle to evangelise our communities is not that they are more hostile to Jesus. It's that we just don't love them enough. In uh, London, in our church planting um, network, we've often likened London to the Titanic, which is rather uh, tiny because you're, the museum's just near here. I have actually been to it. It's very spectacular because uh, the boat was built near here, wasn't it? And um, the, the, the Titanic, if you remember, 1912, uh, 1,500 passengers died when this apparently, supposedly, unsinkable cruise line, this huge ship, uh, struck an iceberg. And um, you've probably seen the film. 
And um, I don't know if you know, but the, the reason why so many people died was increased by, for four reasons. One, there were not enough lifeboats for the people on the ship. Can you imagine that? Not enough lifeboats for the people on the ship. Which is a bit like London. There are not enough gospel churches for the people who live in London. And I gather the same is true here in Belfast. There are not enough churches for the people who live here. Secondly, the crew were not trained in how to use the lifeboats. And so some of them got broken. And I gather it's the same in London and in Belfast. We need our young people and our young ministers for a lot more training in how to reach the lost. Because we're often so clumsy at it. Thirdly, I don't know if it's true here, but in London it is true. I don't know if you know in the film, it's absolutely appalling when you think about it, the poorer passengers were locked below decks while the wealthy passengers got into the lifeboats. You see that in the film, don't you? And it's absolutely appalling, and yet it's true, certainly in London, that most of the wealthier districts of London have got gospel teaching churches in them, and the poorer districts, particularly with the immigrant communities, there are much fewer, much fewer gospel churches. And we are trying to, trying to make it, we have church plants on housing estates and in different communities. We've got to try and reach the whole city and not just the rich. It's completely unconscionable to do that. But fourthly, the main reason why so many died, and you do see that in the film, that some of the half-filled lifeboats with the wealthy in them sat on the outside of the disaster, waiting for the people who were drowning, waiting for the screaming to stop, and they didn't dare go back and get the passengers in case they were swamped by all the people desperate to get into the boat. Yeah, you know that? And it struck us that actually this is, this is tragically a bit like London, full of half-empty churches where people are staying quiet, not very engaged with their local community. They're really anxious not to, because there's so much trouble and need out there. What if all those needy people come in? Let's just stay quiet and then wait till the screaming has stopped and offer a funeral. And uh, I think we just realised we are not going to do that. We cannot do that. You know, sit singing blah, blah songs in a half-empty church and then not try and reach the people who live, live around here who are drowning in sin and they just need to hear the good news of Jesus in a language they can understand. Because let's face it, most people have no idea what real Christianity is about. Jesus was filled with compassion. And we've got an ounce of, of, of compassion, an ounce of humanity for people who don't need Jesus all around us in great numbers. We will try to seek an opportunity to explain the gospel to them. So the first reason, Jesus was an evangelist. Second, people need Jesus. And the third reason, which is incredibly obvious, I know, the harvest needs workers. The harvest needs workers. This is verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, this is verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus identified two features of the age in which we still live. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. <coughs> he realised the twelve are nowhere near enough. The harvest is ripe because there are sinners everywhere ready to be saved. And like his fishing metaphor, he'll later use this harvesting metaphor as an image of judgment, as the prophets did, but here he's using it for evangelism. London and Belfast are mission fields full of people needing a friend to explain the gospel in a language they can understand, or if you can't explain it, to bring them to church to, to let somebody else explain it to them. 
Notice the challenge is not the hardness of society, but the shortage of workers. Because it seems to me, if people are spiritually dead, then it can't be true that people are harder in our time than they were at a previous time. That's like saying the people in one cemetery are more dead than in another cemetery. All cemeteries are dead, okay? Everyone's dead in all the cemeteries. It's all the same. Now, I accept that we have to find new ways to reach new generations and so on, but let's not sort of pity ourselves and say, oh, it's so hard these days. We can't possibly... Listen, they're dead, okay? Spiritually, always have been, always will be. We were pretty hard before we became Christians. Not too hard for the Lord. The problem is not the hardness of society. The problem is the shortage of workers. Now, it's wonderful, you see, to be living on the mission field. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but um, I don't really want to live in a country full of Christians. And what's the point of that? I mean, it's almost as bad as working in a church team where you turn up every morning. Uh, can I tell you? Oh, you already know. Oh, can I tell you about? Oh, you already know. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live amongst non-Christians? To go and play for a football team and um, for none of the other people to be Christians. Wouldn't that be brilliant? Turn up the changing room, and there in the changing room, there's a Hindu, a couple of Muslims, several atheists, a Satanist, and a couple of Roman Catholics. And none of them, no, no view of Jesus. That is fantastic. That means any conversation with any of those people is an opportunity for the gospel. I mean, if they're all Christians, what is the point of that? No point in playing football with that team. Imagine turning up to an office surrounded with non-Christians. It's wonderful. You can go for a drink at the water cooler, have lunch with anybody, have a conversation. I used to go, when I was, worked in London, I used to do that thing called Two Ways to Live, Six Pictures. Used to take all the lawyers out, everybody on my floor all had to come, and uh, it just, you don't ask permission, you just do it. I kind of show you something, I discover it's brilliant, and then just get on with it. Or if you really want a great thing that works today better than I think Six Pictures used to work, I was at the dinner with my wife for her birthday recently, and uh, we sat next to her, I could overhear a couple of wealthy couples talking to each other at this posh restaurant. And they were sort of showing off a bit about places they'd been and then uh, in the world, and you know, oh, oh, you know, what was going on. And then, um, uh, and they were chatting away, and, and then one of the ladies said, um, uh, I've started going to church, you know. Crashing silence. This was clearly not what they expected. And the other couple said, really? She said, yeah. She said, it's totally changed my life. And they said, oh, how? So she started talking to them about Jesus. And I thought, what a brilliant way to share the good news of Jesus. Rather than preaching at them, you're hell-deserving sinners, and I need to tell you quick, you know, slap, slap, we'll never talk to you again. That is no good. In our culture, certainly where we are in London, preaching at people is not welcome. But telling your story is. Everyone's entitled to tell their story. So if you can start with, with saying something like, you know, uh, I started going to church, actually. found this church in Belfast. It's changed my life. Oh, how? You're entitled to tell your story. If only we'll speak up. What did you do for the weekend? Oh, nothing much. What did you do for the weekend? I've gone to this new church, actually. It's, it's totally changed my life. Or, if you can't say that, I've gone to this new church, really. It's brilliant. Oh, wow. Well, because actually, I mean, apart from this English book that came recently, it was a complete waste of time. But usually there... They teach the Bible really clearly, and I'm understanding the faith in a way I never did before. You should come. It's brilliant. I mean, you don't have to, but I'll buy you a beer afterwards. I'll buy you two if you come twice. <laughs> it is wonderful, you see, to be alive on the mission field. You don't have to go anywhere to be on the mission field. You're on the mission field right now. Here in Belfast, this is the mission field. If you don't know that, you go to South Korea and ask them where they think the mission field is. They think it's this part of the world. 
We are the mission field. We're such a godless place. What a great place. You go to university growing up because you're on the mission field. I tell this story. I used to live in Nigeria many years ago. And uh, basically, tell, it, it, it all depends on how you see things. There was a shoe salesman sent to Nigeria to, to, to sell shoes. After six months, the shoe salesman sent back the, uh, uh, the report to his uh, home country, and it said, um, situation's hopeless, nobody wears any shoes here, bring me home immediately. So they, they brought him home, and uh, they sent out another salesman, and the salesman came out, and after six months, sent, sent back a completely different report. Uh, uh, the situation's absolutely fantastic, nobody wears any shoes here, send all the shoes you can find. Is it great to be a Christian in a godless country like this? It's fantastic. You're living on a mission field and every opportunity. You have so, much, so many opportunities to talk about Jesus. And therefore, I want to encourage you to maximize your evangelism. If you're a Christian here, I want to encourage you to stop being a spectator and get on the pitch. Now, I, there are lots of different positions. Very interesting. Jesus doesn't say... Um, the harvest is plentiful, but the clergy are few. He doesn't say, what will fix everything is just more clergy. We don't need more clergy, we need more workers. Workers of every kind. Yeah, we need some to be ministry trainees. And we need some to be earning a lot of money to pay for the ministry trainees, so long as they actually do. And we need some to be all kinds of presbyters and pastors and patrons and, and planters. And Don't worry, there's work for everyone, we just need workers. We do not have enough gospel workers for Belfast. We do not have enough gospel workers for London. We need more workers. And I want to encourage you to get off the sidelines and get on the pitch. I don't really care what position you play. We've got five minutes to go. We're three points down. We're five yards from the, from the line. If we give this an extra push, we could fill this place and plant another. We just need more workers. The Rugby World Cup's just finished, hasn't it? And uh, uh, I don't really want to talk about it. Um, but I, a long, long time ago, I did play rugby. I know you wouldn't believe that. But, um, and I used to play wing. And for any of the wingers here, even if you don't know anything about rugby, you, you probably know that after a rugby match, you know, back in the changing room, you can imagine what it's all like. Everybody's covered in mud and blood, and the forwards are all there. You know, they've had an ear ripped off, and a tooth is missing, and they've got stud marks all over their face, and there's mud, and, and there's blood, and there's grease, and their shirts are torn, and they're absolutely covered in scars, and they're maimed for life, and they love it, and they're all sort of, and then there's the winger. <laughs> Not a mark on him. And, uh, you know, there's no mud, and there's no blood, and there's absolutely no sign that, I mean, they, honestly, they could go out to dinner like that. I mean, there's nothing on them, because they, and you can imagine the fours turn to the winner and they say, were you even playing in that match? Because it's just not a mark on you. I just want to say to you, if you're a Christian here, don't arrive in heaven like the clean-shirted winger. Because there were the Nigerians over there covered in blood. And there's the North Koreans over there, always sort of covered in, in bandages and stuff. And people from all over the world with stories to tell. And people will have the stories to tell of what happened in their life. And then there's the gutless gang from Belfast and London who just kind of... Not a mark on them. You do not want to turn up in front of Jesus looking like that. So I don't know what it means for you. Jesus says, pray. Pray. 
Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field, and it might well include you guys. Pray. We actually started an organisation in the UK called, sorry, back in London, called 938 after this verse. And we've been running conferences ever since I still run the Ministry Trainees Conference. We've got a conference coming up called Maximise. Because we are desperate for more workers to reach the people of London and the UK and the world. Let's begin to pray. It's his mission. He cares with gut-wrenching compassion for the people of this city. More than we ever will. Therefore, he says, ask me. Ask me to send out workers and then be willing to contribute what we can, because in the very next chapter, he recruits them to go on mission. Offer, offer yourselves. Offer yourselves to the pastors here. I don't know any of you here. You know, Dave and, and uh, uh, the, the guys here, they, they'll, they'll know you. Trevor, they'll know, no, it's good to you to do this, good to do that. Yeah, no, you're ready for this kind of training? No, you're not ready for that? That's what they're here for. Just don't stand like a spectator, watching while other people get muddy and get their hands dirty doing the job and then regret it and get to the end of your life and you've done nothing. Don't do that. It's a waste of a life. You guys are at the beginning of your life. Live it flat out for Jesus. And don't be the clean-shirted winner. One last story if I can. Have I got two minutes? Finish there. Come on. What do you want me to do now then? Pray. Pray first or not? Let's pray. <laughs> Let me give you a moment of quiet just to think for yourselves before the Lord Jesus. And if you're not yet a Christian here, then please do think upon why we're so committed to the Lord Jesus, because he was an evangelist. People need Jesus and you need Jesus but the harvest needs workers. And for those of us that are your people, Lord Jesus, you said to ask you, the Lord of the harvest, we pray, please, send out more workers from this church, and if necessary, send us. Help us to be willing to ask the question what we should do next, to do what we can as the people we are, in the situations we're in, to contribute to your mission to reach the lost. Because we want to be like you, Lord Jesus. You were an evangelist. Because people desperately need you. And because the harvest needs workers. And so please help us to volunteer and to be willing to do what we can. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Richard, thanks very much. Um, there have been some brilliant questions coming in the Slido. Um, if you're not on it already, if you want to check that out, you'll be able to see what I'm about to ask. It's possible to poll the questions, to vote for um, the uh, most uh, important question in this, but I'm just going to decide um, which one is which. These questions are to do with um, my skills, my gifts, what qualifies me, what may disqualify me. Um, aren't I too sinful? What if I feel I'm too sinful for ministry? Um, what if I haven't led anyone to the Lord? Um, I don't have gifts in evangelism. Should I still consider ministry? How would you respond to all those sorts of things? Character, qualities? Yeah, and, and the, question, the answer to all those questions is we're all different, and we're at different stages in our uh, growth in becoming like Jesus. And it may be if I've just become a Christian, the, the, the most important thing that you and, and uh, Dave would be advising would be uh, no, spend some time, learn the gospel. You're not much use to anybody else until you understand what we're telling people, so you need to spend some more time learning. 
Uh, it may well be that if you're struggling with particular sins, especially the sins that would bring you know, public disgrace on the gospel, that, uh, yeah, you need a bit of time, a bit of help to, to, to get on top of those and um, get them under control before you bring the whole Christian family into, dis- in, into disrepute. So there may be some big sins, um, but listen, most of us, we've all got different kinds of sins, we've got different kinds of struggles. The issue is, is being willing to accept training and help and to say, look, what can I do at the stage I'm at now? It might be that uh, I want to go on a youth camp and I want to learn how to serve in a youth team in the su- on the summer. Uh, it may well be for some who are leaving university, could I do a ministry trainee year? I don't know whether you do it straight after university or later, but volunteers say, could I do it straight after uh, college? Um, if your students here, you already have many privileges that other people don't have in terms of education and skills and so on which can be trained. Uh, and so already you're way ahead of many. Let me tell you one, you don't want to more illustrations, but in the UK, in the Church of England, uh, 25% of the clergy don't believe God created the world. 33% of the clergy don't believe Jesus died for our sins. 50% of the clergy don't believe Jesus is the only way to salvation. So if you're a Christian, you're already ahead of half of the clergy in the Church of England. The standard is not high. I mean, it is shocking. We need people who believe the gospel. So if you're a Christian here and you're a student with some education, you probably can be trained. We just need more workers. That's what we need. So just on that, brother, um, this is to do with should I go into full-time ministry and leave a career where I've got loads of opportunities with my you know, the water cooler kind of conversations. The yep. question specifically here is, and it's just moved in the polling, how should those working in public services share the gospel when often the professional guidance prohibits and restricts it? There are two different questions. Firstly, if you're not having conversations with people at work that are making you think it's not worth leaving your work, then you're not the kind of person who should be thinking of gospel ministry anyway. Say that again. Was it my accent that no, didn't help? No, but it's so... <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're not the kind of person who's having so many conversations with people at work about the gospel that you're thinking that maybe you shouldn't leave your work, then you're not the right kind of person to be thinking of full-time gospel ministry anyway. In other words, the kind of person who's going to be most useful to be set apart and paid for it is the person who's already doing it. We just want to give you more time to do it. So when I was a commercial lawyer, I did try and take other lawyers along to lunchtime services in London. I did try and evangelize people. One guy in the property department became a Christian. And I caught up with him recently, is in Malawi, bringing people to, to Christ in, in great numbers, praise God. Uh, so you can do a lot at work. So I, quite right, you should be thinking, it's just that you also have to do your job. You know, you have, you have to, eight hours a day, do, do your work. And now when you're set apart by other people to do it, you get to do what you love doing full time. Now, you still have meetings, and there's still stuff to prepare for it. But, you know, should I have stayed as a commercial lawyer for, for, for the last... 30 years, I've had more opportunities to speak for Jesus and to multiply and train other people to do that now that I'm not a lawyer. So uh, if you're not the person who's going to be, you don't have the gifts for preaching, you can still serve God in a wonderful way as a lawyer in an office. But if you do have the gifts and the opportunities, and many who are students do because there's lots of educational gifts, you've got lots of opportunities. I mean, some of the guys who've become Christians at our church in recent years would give their right arm to be where you are now with their life ahead of them and the opportunities that you have to make decisions 
that will mean that you can serve in Christian, and they'll pay for you. I noticed that I don't know who the, the older guys are at the back of the church, but I'm hoping there's some of the I'm hoping there's some of the people who say we'll pay for you. You do a ministry trade, we'll pay for you because if I was where you were, I can't now. I've got family commitments, I can't do it like you. But you could do it, and I'll pay for you. That's how it works. It's a team game, and if you're young, you've got so much ahead of you. You've got decisions to make, and I'd urge you just maximise your gospel ministry. We're all different. God doesn't want us all doing your job. It's just we need a lot more of you than we have at the moment. Is evangelism the mission of the church or a mission? The mission of the church. Everything is for that. So the teaching of the Bible is to equip people for holy evangelism. That's what it's, that's what it's for. Now, it's adorned by the godliness of our lives. And the Bible, of course, asks us to love people in many ways. The Old Testament in particular you know, to love the orphan and the widow and the poor and the marginalised. We are to love people in all those ways because they are godly ways. Why do we do those things? To be kind to people, to love them as created in the image of God, precious people, and most of all, to bring them to know the creator who loves them. What's the point of loving somebody and then watching them go to an eternity without their saviour? So the, the word I, it's, not, it's not either or. We love people, the, the, the way we would say it is we love people in every way we can, but especially with the gospel. I'll just say that again, it's so important. It's not either or, you know, you either do evangelism or you love people. No, evangelism is the most loving thing you can do for somebody. So you love people in every way the Bible says. All the social justice, all the compassion, do it all, and especially with the gospel, because that's the most precious thing. You can give someone an eternity with Jesus in paradise, that is priceless. So do everything, especially evangelism. Maximise your gospel ministry. The questions are still coming in, brother. Yep. And we've got just two minutes, I think. Um, trying to pick uh, the most significant question here. Isn't evangelism arrogant? Um, it's arrogant uh, if we claim we know what other people need. But it's not arrogant to show somebody else who you understand has the same needs that you have, to show them where you found help. You, you can do evangelism arrogantly. You certainly can. Sometimes we as Christians are so obnoxious, we forget that we, we once didn't know Jesus. And we're a lot worse than the guy sitting in front of us. And the way we talk to them is so condescending. So there is, there is certainly, we can be arrogant sometimes, if I may say, and we just need to stop that. But when you're sharing with somebody who you know needs the, sh the good shepherd, you know, the people I get to talk to in my, in my job, come to our church, and you talk to them about their lives, you, and, they, and they need Jesus. It's not arrogant to show them where the saviour who loves them can be found. Uh, so I, I'm not saying, I know something you don't know, let me tell you about it, that is obnoxious. But it's, you know, brother, sister, you, you, I am so sorry to hear that. Um, I've discovered there is somebody who, who's helped me through this. Uh, could I share something about that person with you? Um, it's, in, it, it's a matter of the heart. It's how you see people. If you see them as sheep in need of a shepherd, if you're feeling gut-wrenching compassion for somebody, you won't be arrogant. But if you forget to, to, to see people the way Jesus sees people, then you can certainly turn people off and do a lot of damage. So we all need to help to try and love people the way Jesus does. I think if you love people, 
And often it starts with practical help. So many people become Christians through the loving support and help of a Christian brother or sister who then has the opportunity to explain why, why Jesus means so much to them. It's in the heart. I'm a Christian who's advanced as a conversation with the people, but I've not seen fruit. Should I be concerned that I'm a non-fruit-producing Christian? Yes, of course. It's worth asking questions. You know, if, I, if I'm doing, having lots of conversations and nobody ever wants to know anything more, um, there could be lots of reasons why that's not working. Sometimes, you know, perhaps sharing with a mature friend and say, this is how I do it. You know, the banging on the drum, the trumpet bit doesn't work too well. Um, but it may just be that you're in a hard place. And it's amazing how this is, this is a team game. A conversation you have with somebody, they say, that's not my thing, thanks, I'm not interested. Yeah, but 10 years down the track, somebody else knocks on their door and uh, they're ready to hear. And uh, yeah, there was a girl at, at uni, she used to bother me and invite me. She was a nice girl, actually. She treated me nicely, but she said she kept praying for me. I wasn't interested then. But because of her, I'm willing to listen to you. That happens all the time. So even if your conversations don't lead to somebody becoming a Christian now, you'll be astonished when you get to heaven and somebody comes up to you and says, you won't remember me, but you remember I was in your biology class and, and, uh, and you were really nice to me and I gave you such a hard time. I gave you such a hard time. Uh, but I'm so grateful because actually I thought you, you, you had something I didn't have and I wanted it. I meet people in my, my church who are a little older who've had those experiences at university from Christians. So can I encourage you, don't underestimate. You're a link in a chain. So often there's a great aunt who's been praying for somebody since day one. And you do your best. If, if, if they move on, somebody else will do their best. But to keep praying for people, and it's amazing the stories, uh, how God brings people to himself in the end. Brother, thank you so much. Uh, loads Pleasure. of questions here. Um, keep thinking about this. I'm going to hand over to Dave now, but thank you, Richard, for uh, taking time and challenging us with Jesus.